Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we are also archived for your binge listening pleasure. You can find us as a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, anywhere, anytime, day or night, once you're released from the house arrest of being hunkered in your bunker as you travel around the globe. Once again, we are a podcast, the 21st century technology, which is binding us together as one human species occupying a little planet spinning in space. Matt and I are happy to be here. At least we're happy to be talking to you via our Zoom operation. It's a whole new way to do radio. Matt, how are you holding up? How are things in the Robeson household? Uh, so far, no major felonies, misdemeanors, or arrests. So I'd say we're batting about average. Yeah, that's, about, that's, that's true. Uh, but the, the real question is, do you have a new appreciation for what it means to be a teacher? All teachers in America should be paid a million dollars a year, and there should be a National Teachers Day where we do nothing but celebrate teachers. I'm sure at that least, I join all parents in this sentiment. <laughs> at least one day a year, maybe more. I mean, I think one of the results of, of, of the whole pandemic hunkering in the bunker is going to be a whole new appreciation for the role of teachers. Because I've been, I mean, I've been hearing from parents all over the lot that, you know, some of them are at their wits end. Some of them are trying to, trying to take the, actually be in parentis instead of in loco parentis. But everybody is talking about, um, I never realized how, just how hard it was to be a teacher. Absolutely. I used to actually, uh, do some uh, some work with young kids when I was in high school, um, you know, in camps and whatnot. And I, I've never been so exhausted in my life, including times when I've done physical labor. I mean, I, it, it's it's really tiring. But I think you raise a good point, which is that, it, you know, it, it, all of this is sort of loose speculation about the changes that we'll see in American society as a result of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. But it is interesting to consider how people's views might shift longer term about all kinds of roles and jobs in our society. We were fortunate enough to get a grocery delivery. Uh, and I have to say, I, I experienced a profound emotional reaction seeing the grocery professional who drove up and delivered the groceries. I, I felt a, an appreciation and a surge of emotion that I usually reserve for members of my family. So. You know, it would be. I, I think that there's a reconsideration underway right now about the people who are driving our transportation and cleaning the spaces that we occupy and bringing uh, other people food. And uh, hopefully, teachers will go right along with that. Well, it certainly gives a whole new uh, understanding of what makes a society like ours run and who really is on the front line and who is not. It, 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 it raises for me some, of, some questions about the recently uh, on its way to dispersal, uh, bailout, stimulus, recovery, help, whatever we're calling the federal uh, multi-billion uh, dollar uh, relief package. 
where I've just heard that money for small businesses has run out. And it seems that a lot of the money in that relief package has gone to banks and hedge funds and big businesses. And it seems to have included a huge tax break for millionaires. Um, the, the media reported that uh, somehow a provision was entered into the, into the bill some would say slipped into the bill, which uh, allowed a tax deduction for those well-heeled enough to need it um, that had previously been taken away, which would only benefit those at the very top. So there's a lot of complex policy at the very top in DC, which is favoring those at the top and those who are still working, exposing themselves to the ravages of the coronavirus, healthcare workers, nurses, orderlies, janitors, cooks, dishwashers, people who are driving buses or vans and delivering things, people in small businesses whose businesses have been pasted, uh, people who are self-employed who can't get through to any of the websites or telephone numbers that are supposed to be there to help them. There seems to be a tremendous disparity between those who are getting what they may not need and those who need a lot who haven't really been recognized, it appears, by those in authority and the federal government uh, in terms of getting, getting help. And you've got a president who I don't want to coin a phrase, but appears to be a pathological megalomaniacal narcissist um, who has just cut off funding for the World Health Organization. That's a pretty stupid thing to do. Who poses, who posts video, who uses press conferences and briefings about the coronavirus as, as campaign propaganda. Uh, uh, the president this past week posted a video that people in the White House had made defending his mishandling of the coronavirus, trying to, trying to gaslight people into believing that he had been on top of this and had done what he was supposed to do when the evidence is clear uh, that he wasted uh, two months dithering and refusing to accept reality. And meanwhile, he apparently has got his name on the checks going out to people, which has delayed people getting their checks. All of this show in the White House, while people who need help aren't getting it. Um, now, I, I point that out because I think that this, that the mishandling by Trump and his administration of the coronavirus and the response, um, has very deep implications for what happens when the pandemic is under control and we are headed for whatever the new normal is. Because as you and I have just been discussing, I'm hoping that there's going to be a recognition of things like the need for universal health care. Uh, I mean, that seems to be a no-brainer. It has always seemed to be a no-brainer. I, I remember, Matt, when, when, when I was in uh, serving as a congressman and we uh, were battling 
over whether or not there would be Obamacare. And I was talking about the need for everybody to have health care. I, I said things like, imagine you're standing on a street corner and you've got health care and you're perfectly healthy, but the person next to you doesn't have any health care and hasn't been able to get to see a doctor. That person sneezes and that person sneezes on you. And it turns out, I would say, that the person had the plague. Well, you get the plague and you die. And if there isn't a better argument for why everybody needs to have health care, because it's in your interest that somebody else who may not even be able to afford it has health care, I can't think of a better argument. Well, that's come to pass. And in addition, we've got, we're going to, we've seen just, uh, there was a report today that pollution over the Northeast is reduced by 30%. And we've seen uh, the, clean, the earth cleaning itself up all over as our industrial activity has been reduced. So whatever we come to on the other side of this pandemic, the new normal better take, take advantage of the breather we've been given and the opportunity to change our ways in lots of ways, big and small. You know, I think you bring up a, a, a lot of good points in that. And, you know, if I were to put it into a couple of simple buckets, it would be thinking about the short term and thinking about the long term. You know, and there have been failures in both in the last few months. In the short term, as you think back to your experience in the financial crisis a dozen years ago, as you recall, as the markets were melting down, the Treasury Secretary and uh, Fed Chair at the time, Paulson and Bernanke, came to Congress and they said explicitly, they came up with their $700 billion TARP number as a jaw-dropping number that would shock people and uh, give reassurance that there was just such an impossibly huge amount of help coming that it would stabilize markets and give people confidence. And that's the easy part in a crisis. That's the, that's the easy first step. And indeed, with the CARES Act, we saw $2 trillion go out the door. And it's very tempting at that point to have a carrier landing mission accomplished banner and think that it's all done. But it turns out, and this is a really, really important point for people like me who truly believe that government done well is important and matters and that the details matter. It, it turns out that those details make the difference between the cooks, janitors, the people who drive buses and take care of kids and are on the front lines of society who are suffering the most right now, whether they really get the help that they need or whether it all ends up getting uh, squandered, wasted or going to the wrong people. You know, and what I think about as a comparison is during the moon program, during the uh, Apollo 11 landing, the miracle of that whole technological achievement was not that they ran the whole spacecraft on a computer that has less power than a pocket watch. Uh, it's that that pocket watch didn't crash once in the whole week that they were going to the moon. And it just goes to show how hard it is to operate highly complex systems without some breakdowns, without some mistakes. That was the miracle of the whole moon program. Well, what you saw in the stimulus a dozen years ago is really shockingly few breakdowns, mistakes, stumbles, and mishaps. And what you're seeing now is the opposite because there was a lot of interest in, in getting the action and the easy part 
and the mission accomplished banner. But under the Trump administration, there's an unwillingness, an aversion to doing the hard, detailed work of government, which is to sweat the details and to make sure that you've thought things through and that the people who need the help are getting the help and that you're not dissipating it. We can talk about the long term as well, but I think that that goes to your you know, final point there, which is it is now time to start thinking about if you're going to be pushing all that money out the door, how do you help people who need it most now? But how do you also make sure that you're building for something that's going to outlast the current crisis? There was a disinclination in putting together this CARES Act, this $2 trillion CARES Act, a severe disinclination on the part of the Senate Republicans to include any provisions which smacked of a Green New Deal, which, which went against in any way the president's agenda to do away with safeguards for the environment, to cut the, cut the knees out of the uh, EPA, to Incre to increase the pollution of our air and water wherever he could, to strike at the heart of whatever environmental concerns there are. The CARES Act could have been uh, a real uh, bellwether, a real call to action for what I think could help revive the economy, which is moving from the pandemic of coronavirus to taking on and tackling the uh, existential crisis of climate change in a real way, which would create jobs, bring new industries, put people back to work, clean up the planet, uh, and do what we need to do to give us a better lifestyle with changes uh, and be responsible towards the environment. But that is wishful thinking with this administration and the Senate Senate, uh, the Senate Republicans in control of the Senate. Matt, when we come back, let's talk a little bit about how we should get the economy moving after the lockdown era is over. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for your binge listening pleasure. We are going to take a short break to hear from the good folks who are keeping our station on the air in this all-important time when there are a lot of people listening to the radio. And we want to thank all the folks who are listening to us. We will be back after this with more off the record don't go away we're back it's off the record with paul hodes and matt robeson co-hosting here on wkxl and fm streamed live over the internet nhtalkradio.com you can find us archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Matt Robeson and I have been talking about the state of play, how things in good government get done, how things in government that doesn't work don't get done. Uh, and Matt, what do you think about uh, the all-important issue of what the new normal is going to look like? We've got a, not only the fear, but clearly indications of a global recession, perhaps global depression, because economic activity hasn't seen this kind of downturn since the Great Depression 
of 1929. Uh, I don't know how many millions of people, I don't know the number today of the millions who have filed for unemployment. There are many in small business and the self-employed especially who are not seeing uh, the help they need. And what do we do? How do we get a consumer economy, an industrial society moving again once the lockdowns are over? What's, what's the good news? What's the bad news? How does it get done? You know something about economics. You studied it in college. You're a smart guy. What do we do? So I guess the bad news is that we are indeed in a hole. We, uh, so the number you were, you were bringing to mind is 22 million people who have filed for unemployment. And it looks like, yeah. And so it looks like one in every 10 American adults has lost their job in the last four weeks. And 1.6 million loans have been approved by the small business administration and they've run out of money. And so that's the bad news. If there's, it's too much to say good news, but I think it is worth bearing in mind that what we're in is not so much an economic meltdown along the lines of what we saw in the financial crisis, which had to do with over leveraging debt, financial institutions freezing up. It is more of a hibernation. And what that means is that it's more important than ever to take a modern economic view of the path forward. That means psychology. You know, when I was studying economics, we learned kind of the rational actor model, the classical model of how economies behave. And it treated human beings like the way physicists would treat atoms of a, of a gas in space. And, you know, there are sort of laws of physics for how they'll all act. Well, then there was a subsequent behavioral economics revolution that really informed the thinking of the whole profession around the way people really think, the way people really make decisions. And of course, human beings, as anyone could tell you, are totally irrational and make decisions on all kinds of psychological bases that have nothing to do with a, you know, dry economic calculus. And so what this is all going to boil down to is how do people feel? Do they feel comfortable resuming the activities that lead to economic activity uh, and uh, uh, velocity of dollars around the economy. And that's where I think a common sense kind of rational restart plan along the lines of what Joe Biden put out this week, uh, what you're hearing basically from a lot of public health leaders makes a lot of sense. And it basically entails a very slow phased, uh, in some cases, local or regional restart uh, that involves a ramp up, undertaking activities in a different way. You may have restaurants that have plexiglass shields between tables and that space people out. You might have people going to school. You might have kids going to school in shifts uh, to keep them distanced apart. There's, there's a fundamental rethink needed. And again, it, it goes back to the point we were making before the break, which is the details matter. Being led by science and facts and expertise matters. And what I'm afraid of, and this isn't meant to be a partisan statement, what I'm afraid of is that we have an administration at the federal level that really seems allergic to that kind of detailed, thoughtful governmental leadership, and that's going to make it a heck of a lot harder. 
You know, I keep thinking when I, not only when I've listened to your interesting analysis of rational economics versus behavioral economics, uh, because it's clear that uh, we have, we are now in a period of time when behavior has been completely altered. I cannot think of any time in my life, and I, I, I challenge anyone um, to think of any time uh, in the past, uh, well, certainly century, because the last pandemic was in 1918, but uh, a, a time when the, the halt of, 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 normal act, of what was normal activity has been so total and so consequential. Uh, in World War II, uh, everything changed for a period of years while America was, the United States was galvanized to wage a war both overseas and with the support at home against uh, a terrible threat to the global order. There was a purpose and extraordinary activity that was necessary. The sense, the cessation of activity, the decline of work, uh, which in the United States is particularly important because I cannot think of any society in the world that has been as defined by its approach, its acceptance, of the importance and purpose of work in our lives uh, as the United States. And that has been for many people uh, taken away or changed. Uh, as you say, 10% of America's workforce has filed for unemployment. And in addition, almost perhaps another 80% of people are working in who are working are working in some completely new way, which doesn't involve any physical interaction with other humans. The, the basis of, of, of everything that defines us as humans is the way we want to interact in society. So when I think about the economics of moving past the pandemic and restarting an economy, I don't, I, I can't use the word recovery because I do not see how the word recovery, which means recovering what we had, is applicable to this situation. I think we're going to be in something totally different than what we've experienced before in terms of the level of industrial activity, the degree to which consumerism will define the, the, the activities of Western society, the amount of travel we're going to want to undertake, the amount of interaction we're going to want to undertake. And that means we could be looking at an economy, let's just say in the United States, whose GDP and whose, whose growth curve uh, is no longer the, defi the defining element of um, 
a properly working economy. We may have to completely shift our notion of what makes life worth living in order to sustain some different kind of economics than we've been used to. That's a stunner. Yeah, I mean, there's been some interesting opinion research on this, and it, it appears that so far there have been two effects that have gone in opposite directions. On the one hand, Americans have responded in this research by showing that they're feeling increasing solidarity with other people. On the other hand, they have a greater acceptance that it's okay for inequalities to occur because of bad luck. And those, those kind of go in opposite directions. And which one of those impulses prevail, I would submit, comes down ultimately again, and this is you know, a core principle for me, it's a belief, so maybe I'm asserting something without enough evidence, but I think it comes down to leadership. I think what you see historically is that strong leaders are able to help convert people's sentiments, people's reactions, especially in a time of crisis, into a more productive societal approach to a problem. So for example, at the outset of his hostilities in the Second World War, which you alluded to a moment ago, you saw FDR frame the Lend-Lease program. You know, we're gonna go help out our ally, England. It's like your neighbor has a house on fire, you're gonna bring them a ladder and you're gonna worry about the bill later. You know, just to give credit to a Republican here, a very different kind of crisis, but during the Challenger explosion. That was a horrifying national tragedy, deeply felt in New Hampshire with Krista McAuliffe. And Ronald Reagan did the country a great service in sort of converting the psychology of that moment in his national address that night when he brought people to, to, to thinking about not the, the, the vision of the fireball, of the explosion, but about the moment when they were on the launch pad, when they were boarding the ship, um, before, as he put it, they slipped the surly bonds of earth. So that kind of leadership right now, I think, could go a long way toward determining which pathway we go down uh, during this difficult next 12 to 24 months or maybe even longer. And again, I, I think that's where I really, not out of partisan leanings, but just as an American, am really sorry that we have the, the leadership that we currently have. Yeah, I, there's, there is no doubt that, uh, that leadership matters, experience matters, uh, judgment matters, empathy matters. Uh, those are all uh, powerful arguments, which we don't have to spend really any time arguing because our listeners uh, know pretty clearly how we feel about the current occupant of the White House and his cabal of corporate cronies who are just feeding at the trough and elevating their own interests above those of the people. I, I, I'll just end our brief economics discussion by pointing out that there has been some experience about trying to restart a virus hit economies and it's certainly not easy. Uh, some reporting out of Beijing points out that workers are back on the job, are wary of spending much, are going out. Shoppers are staying away from the few stores that are reopening. Masks and social distancing measures are not fading. And 
the fear uh, that has been generated by this virus uh, is pervasive and could return if lockdowns um, are eased too quickly. And in fact, China is now experiencing a second wave of the coronavirus, which is something that the health professionals here are cautioning uh, the administration about. And meanwhile, the president has, seems to be on a propaganda program to try to convince folks that we ought to start reopening economies in May on May 1st. You've got a crazy scene going on. I mean, there are uh, there, there were protests in, in Michigan by people who stormed the state house to demand that the governor Gretchen Whitmer open up the economy. I mean, that that you know, I didn't see any, I didn't see a lot of masks there or social distancing among the crowd at the Michigan state house. And for all we know, they're going to go the same way as the group of groups of churchgoers who uh, defied the social distancing uh, commands, went to church and all have fallen ill and fallen prey to the virus. It's a very uncertain time. Economies don't like uncertainty. Nobody's happy with it. And there's also uncertainty surrounding what's gonna happen in the United States of America in November because there's an election coming up. And Matt Robeson and I, who are co-hosts of Off the Record on WKXLAM and FM right here, uh, will be back after a short break to talk a little bit about what we can say and what we can't say and what we think some of the issues may be when we get to election season, assuming we do. Don't go away. We'll be back after this. We're back. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes co-hosting on WKXL AM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we are talking about the state of play in the United States and our little planet as we all struggle with a global pandemic that should have been planned for but wasn't and now we're stuck trying to figure out what the white house is thinking about what our economy is going to look like on the other side of this but before we get there we've got an election coming up matt what can we say what we can't we say about the election right now especially given in recent days the flood of endorsements for Joe Biden on the Democratic side, and Democrats still worried about whether or not he's the right candidate. What's going on? What are we seeing? So I think that's the right way to think about it in terms of what we can say and what we can't say. So I, I think there are a few things that are worth paying attention to right now that there's, a, there's enough uh, meat on the bone with them that you can, you can treat them as indicators of what may happen in the election. So one thing that is relevant is you're seeing higher levels of democratic enthusiasm than 
we were seeing at this time four years ago. Uh, according to Reuters, Ipsos, they just did a poll, about 70% of Democrats say they're certain to vote. That's nine points higher than at the same relative point four years ago. And the Republican increase in enthusiasm is smaller. It's about 3% higher, although the total level is 71% compared to the Democrats' 70. But the point is that Democrats do seem more locked in. And as listeners to this program know, turnout is a huge factor in the result of the election. I think, as you alluded to, the Bernie Sanders endorsement, the Warren endorsement, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez almost endorsement yesterday, and sort of that unfolding unification process, that's something that I think people can keep a close eye on. That matters. And the fact that it's happening, it's happening earlier than any time since 2004, is also relevant. And I think that as the numbers from the first quarter of 2020 begin to roll in, in terms of fundraising at both the congressional and the presidential level, those are things that are worth paying attention to because they give a barometer for enthusiasm and for how the campaigns are, are trying to adapt and how they'll shape up heading into the fall. So, so those are relevant figures. The things that I think people should be skeptical about right now First of all, the horse race numbers. We know from political science research that there's almost no correlation between horse race numbers in the presidential race now and what's going to happen in November. Those numbers don't start to really tell you much until you get to under 100 days. And this year, with the coronavirus pandemic, that's going to be even more so. So when you see numbers showing Biden with a five to six point national lead, you can kind of shrug your shoulders. You can look a little bit at some of the state-by-state state numbers. I'm not sure how much stock to put in those, but it is worth noting that in the battleground states, those numbers are a lot more tenuous for Biden and for Democrats. Uh, so and yet another reason not to take the horse race numbers nationally too seriously. Uh, it's also, I'd be skeptical of any extrapolations of how people are feeling now about Trump's performance in the crisis and how they may feel six months from now. We know that people- we were talking Six months is a long, long way. It's an eternity in political terms. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I, I, we were talking before about behavioral economics and the psychology of how people, well, one of the things that we've learned a lot about is recency bias, the availability heuristic. People tend to gravitate toward things that they can easily bring to mind and that happened within the last few weeks. So, you know, trying to project that forward is really tricky. Um, you know, and, and, and for that reason, too many predictions about what conditions will be like in November uh, also strike me as uh, not particularly worth putting a lot of stock in right now. Well, what about, what about the, the, one of the big issues that has been on the front burner for uh, a couple of weeks now. I mean, and that is about how voting will or won't happen in November and whether or not it's an issue that Democrats can use as a battle cry and whether it's this should be the that access to the polls in or just after a coronavirus pandemic should be uh, the Democrats' main rallying cry. I mean, what we saw was 
a catastrophic mess of an election in Wisconsin. Um, I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine, can we imagine uh, an election in November where voters are lined up for perhaps not hours, who knows, maybe days at the polls, all wearing masks, standing in the freezing cold for God knows how long, waiting to cast a vote where everybody is afraid that the person ahead of them or behind them in line is going to make them sick. Uh, and people, all of a sudden, all that great proposed turnout that you cited, all of a sudden people decide, golly, I'm, I'm going to stay home. And what we've got is a, a Republican all-out effort to limit any changes that would allow uh, vote, real voting to take place or preserve access in the age of COVID-19. I mean, the president has even dropped all, any pretense he ever had about it and basically came out and said, yeah, I mean, if people vote in large numbers, Republicans can't win. So obviously what we're gonna have is a nationwide effort by Republicans to shut down any changes to voting. So is this where Democrats take their last stand? Is this, is this the line in the sand moment for Democrats? So I did a deep dive on this on Alternet that I definitely commend to our listeners. Uh, and I titled it, Should Democrats Go to War with Trump Over Mail-In Voting? The answer isn't as easy as you might think, because my first instinct in addressing this question that you teed up was, yes, my blood is up about this. And the images coming out of Wisconsin definitely set me on edge, as I think they did for a lot of Democrats. And look, I, I think for our listeners, I, most of the reasons that Democrats are citing that they should really, truly go to the mattresses on this are pretty obvious. They, they think with some reason that Donald Trump represents a clear and present danger to the health and safety of Americans and to American democracy, as shown by the, the Wisconsin experience. And we know that the only way we can possibly get this done is through Congress, through the U.S. House. And, you know, we, we know from the experience of the Ebola crisis just six years ago that Republicans wouldn't hesitate to go to the mat uh, and, and to frame things in highly political terms, um, you know, in, in order to gain leverage. They certainly did that during the financial crisis when they had very explicit demands to pass the American Relief and Recovery Act. So, and we know that polling shows that voters, including a majority of Republicans, two thirds of Republicans support expanded mail-in voting. I think the issue is there are some pitfalls. There, there, are some, there are some downsides. One, and I'll stop after this and, and see what your reaction is. You know, we know that Donald Trump is working overtime to try and shift the blame for his own failures onto anyone else. The latest is the WHO. So turning this into a big partisan fight in Congress, like we will not pass anything else unless we have universal mandated mail-in voting in November, that would set this up for exactly the kind of uh, partisan meltdown and blame shifting opportunity that Donald Trump seems to be itching for. So let me stop at that one and see how that grabs you. Well, uh, Republicans are much better than Democrats at scorched earth politics. Democrats 
uh, unfortunately act with a conscience uh, and act and 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 have and are empathetic and compassionate. Republicans are after power, so we know from lots of past experience that Democrats never are capable of of doing what Republicans could do in the same situation. I have no doubt that if the shoe was on the other foot, uh, in terms of who was in control of which body, that Republicans would be thinking about how to jam this down Democrats' throat in a very effective way, both with messaging and everything else. So, so that the, I agree with you, there is a danger if Democrats took a stand that said, we're not gonna pass anything until we know that there's gonna be mail-in voting everywhere and that the right to vote is gonna be protected. There's a real risk that that could backfire on Democrats just because Democrats are so bad at messaging and Republicans are so much better. It would make for a field day in saying, oh, folks, you need help, but these Democrats are just playing politics with it. The Democrats just, they don't, they don't care about helping you. They want their own political, their political uh, fortunes greased. It's all about their own re-elections, and that's what's going on. So, so yeah, you know. that, yeah, yeah, you, you know that ha that would happen because the Republicans play hardball and Democrats play wiffle ball, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. And Democrats have a conscience, and we keep thinking about, well, gee, what would happen if this doesn't work? And golly, we've got it. so anyway, uh, not to whine about being a Democrat, but the Republicans would clobber us. So, so, so. There is that. But we don't want to be afraid of our own shadow either, right? I mean, you know, I that's think that's right. the... But, but I think the real question becomes... So look, we know that that's one of the trade-offs. What I think it comes down to is what we could title, is the juice worth the squeeze, which is one of my favorite expressions. And, you know, I think it's worth bearing in mind here. Um, we're not making a lot of orange juice at home these days. It's worth bearing in mind that voting from home, vote at home, there's actually a National Vote at Home Institute, turns out. You know, they've done a lot of number crunching on this. 42 states would have to undertake a massive infrastructural change. And there's a lot of problems at baseline, even at the small scale, even at the very small scale at which mail-in voting occurs today. In 2008, which was an even smaller scale 12 years ago, there were 3.9 million requested ballots never received, 2.9 million ballots mailed to voters that were never returned, 800,000 returned ballots rejected. And so if you think about that kind of a scale up, and then you think about the fact that Republicans have dug in their heels, election law experts have said they don't think that it's particularly realistic that a mandate like this could pass through Congress. And the fact that you've already got 33 states that have no excuse absentee voting, meaning you just request an absentee ballot for any reason and you can get one. And then you look at the states that don't have that. Really, the only states that are true swing states that are really going to matter in November are Virginia, which just scaled up early voting under Governor Northam, and New Hampshire, which you don't want to rely on this. But as you alluded to last week, the Secretary of State has come out and said that Fear of coronavirus represents a disability, and anyone who wants an absentee ballot can get one. So you really, what you end up with, I think, at the end of the day, is 
a more open question than I would have assumed going into it about, is this all really worth it? Is it really worth going to the mat and giving Trump this excuse to try and shift the blame and turn this into a big partisan fight, which is his MO, is that really worth it for the game? Particularly when, by the way, that election in Wisconsin, the big partisan showdown on that ballot was over a seat on that state's Supreme Court, and the Democrat won even under those very strange election conditions. Oh my, there's lots to chew on. And it would be a state-by-state slog that would need to be coordinated, something Democrats are not very good at. Folks, I, I suggest you all finish your study of this issue by reading Matt's article at thealternate.org uh, or following his terrific blog, amoreperfectunionforum.com. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL, deep in our bunkers, communicating by 21st century personal digital devices to bring you Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL, streamed live at nhstalkradio.com. We'll take a short break and we'll be back to wrap up after this. We are back. It's Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson co-hosting Off the Record on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Matt Robeson and I had a wide-ranging conversation in this week's edition. We talked about the White House. We talked about the ineffectiveness of the White House. We talked about what life after the pandemic looks like for our economy. We talked about our elections and what's gonna happen in November. And the final answer, Matt, I would say is, golly, nobody knows. A little dose of humility, which is always welcome in a time like this. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. Thanks for listening, folks. You can always find our archived shows at nhtalkradio.com. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record on WKXL.